The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, hey, if I told you um, a guy by the name of Will Pystrup punted a ball 84 yards last night, you might say, so what? Who cares? Um, why do I care? Who is that even? You know, and you might say that even if I believed that it was really good news. Okay? See, good news doesn't make sense, does it, without the context of bad news. The context of the bad news in this illustration is that Nebraska football team, their special teams have been atrocious this year um, and, and up till last night, really. And so, in fact, a week ago, this same gentleman, Will Pystrup punted a ball seven yards, okay? That's not good, in case you were wondering. Another punter kicked the ball in the wrong direction, which resulted in um, a, a touchdown, um, uh, a punt return for a touchdown at a critical moment in a loss against Michigan State. So only with a full understanding of the bad news, see, can we appreciate the good news that, you know, Will kicked a punt 84 yards last night. Now, look, you might recognize that even an understanding of bad news isn't enough, right? I mean, I can tell you the bad news about Nebraska special teams that makes the good news good, but you still might not care, right? Uh, No, for the bad news to really matter, for it to really matter, we have to see how it impacts us. Why does it matter to us? Then, and only then, will the good news really shine. Uh, And that's extremely important for us to understand As we dig into here the next section of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. See, this next section, which begins in Romans 1.18, go ahead and turn there in your copy of the scripture, right? It begins in Romans 1.18. This section actually goes all the way to Romans 3, verse 20. And this whole section is sort of like a parenthesis explaining to us, all right, expounding to us the bad news that makes the good news of the gospel so good. See, in Romans 1.17, you looking at that? Paul speaks in Romans 1.17 of the righteousness of God. Now, in verse 18, he switches to the wrath of God. And if you flip forward, actually, over to chapter 3, verse 21, you see him return to the righteousness of God. And what's in between, okay, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, we're going to spend several weeks in here, it's all about explaining to us why the saving righteousness of God is so essential and so good. In other words, it shows us how the bad news impacts us, why it matters. And this is a super important point for us, you know, for all of us, Christians and non-Christians together. For non-Christians, you you have to grasp the, the bad news, right? You have to grasp the bad news. You have to see the bad news describing you for the gospel to be good news to your soul. And for Christians, we need to keep a grasp on the bad news lest we swell into self-righteousness, it's, it's the reality, see, of the bad news, what, what God has saved us from and into that keeps the gospel sweet to us in, in awe and wonder and praise in our hearts for God, for what he's done through Jesus. And so what's the bad news? Well, Paul's going to tell us about the bad news in this passage. He's going to tell us, number one, what's being revealed, number two, why it's being revealed, and number three, how, how it's being revealed. What, why, and how. Or or to put it another way, he's going to tell us what the bad news is. 
He's going to tell us why the bad news is happening. And he's going to tell us how we see the bad news manifesting around us and in us. Now, it's always important to treat each passage that we take up here in, in the book of Romans in the context of the flow of Paul's argument. Right? You'll remember from last week that Paul says in verse 15 that he's eager to preach the gospel to the Romans. Why was he eager to preach the gospel to the Romans? For or because, verse 16, he's not ashamed of the gospel. We talked about this last week. And he's not ashamed of the gospel if we keep following the flow of his letter, right? He's not ashamed of the gospel for or because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Why is it the power of God for salvation? For or because, verse 17, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. We covered all that last week. But now look at the first word of verse, look at the first word of verse 18. It's for, again, isn't it? For or because. Paul's continuing, see, his line of thinking, isn't he? See, when we turn to verse 18 and, and the beginning of this long section on the bad news, we should be asking, why is this gospel necessary? Why, why must the righteousness of God be revealed to us? Why do we need God's righteousness imputed to us, to use some of the language of last week? Well, it's because, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And this long section is going to place us all squarely, apart from Christ, under God's wrath. But there's no distinction, Paul's going to say, Jew or, or Gentile, religious or, or irreligious, first-time attender here this morning, or 50-year veteran of the church. Paul's going to summarize that there's no distinction in Romans 3, verse 21. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore, apart from Christ, are subject to, are owed, and under the wrath of God. And that's bad news. <laughs> no one likes to hear bad news, do they? You know, if you're giving, even if you're given the choice, you know, I got some good news, got some bad news. Which one do you want first? You know, everybody goes with the good news, you know, because we really don't want to hear the bad news. Or if you, if you do go with the bad news, it's only just to quickly get it out of the way so we can move on to the good news and end on a good note, right? No one likes bad news. And, and this is particularly true of the bad news of the wrath of God, and it's particularly true of our culture today. See, the bad news says you're sinful. You need saved. You need saved from the wrath of God because of your sin. And what our culture tends to say is that the only thing that you need saved from is this archaic idea that you need saved from something. And so this is really controversial in our day. The, the, the primary sin of our culture is to call something sin in our culture. Ours is a day of subjective truth where I decide what's right for me and you decide what's right for you. But don't you dare decide what's right for me because that would be wrong. See, And so we don't like bad news. We reject the bad news, especially the bad news that we read of in the scriptures. More than that, we reject the idea of the, the wrath of God to begin with. We don't like this idea of the wrath of, of God. If God's so good and he created me, why is he so angry? Why all this talk about his wrath, some would ask. But to ask it that way is to misunderstand what the wrath of God is really all about. See, God's wrath, is, God's wrath is not equivalent with anger, like we think of anger. 
We think of anger typically as, an, as this uncontrolled emotion, right? Now, we can experience righteous anger, but most frequently, if we're honest, right, most frequently what, we, what you and I experience is unrighteous anger. We fly off the handle a little. We, we lose it. We have a, maybe an uncontrolled response in some ways to something that upsets us. The, the Greek word for that is thamos. It's, it's red-hot anger, like I've felt watching the Nebraska special teams this year. You know, it's, 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 it's impulsive. It's, it's passionate. That's, that's not the word that's used here in the text. No, the word used in the text is the Greek word orge, which is about a settled and abiding condition. We talk about the wrath of God. It's controlled, not out of control. It's reasonable, not irreasonable. It's, it's, it's not impulsive, right? It's, it's expected, not unexpected. It, it is the necessary reaction of a holy God to sin. See, we tend to think, of, we tend to think that the opposite of wrath, we tend to, to, to think that the opposite of wrath is love. My God isn't a God of wrath, he's a God of love, some would say. But the opposite of wrath isn't love, it's neutrality. It's doing nothing. And God is not neutral. No, no one wants a God who is neutral. I mean, think about it. We, 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 we all think that there's wrong in the world or evil in the world. We might, de- we might disagree on how we define that. But no one wants a God who is neutral to the wrongs, neutral to the evil. You see, God's wrath is the flip side of his righteousness. It's the natural response of a loving God to evil and sin in the world. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. See, God is good. He, he did create you. And God hates evil. He hates sin pre- precisely because he's loving and he knows what it does to you. That's the bad news. The bad news reveals to us the wrath of God, which again, Paul labors in this long section to show us that apart from Jesus, we're all under and owed. Well, if that's what's being revealed, Paul goes on in this passage and he tells us now why. He tells us why it's being revealed. He tells us why the bad news is happening. Why the wrath of God is being revealed in his primary audience, okay, in this section that we're taking up this morning, are the Gentiles. He's speaking to the, the irreligious, we, we might say here, but he won't only target them. He'll target the, the religious and the Jews as we keep going here in the coming weeks. Remember the broad point, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are due his wrath apart from Christ. But he takes aim first at the, at the irreligious. And so look at your Bibles again in, in verse 18 where we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, there's a lot of theirs and, and thems and theys in this section. And it's really important for us to draw those out so we can see carefully what Paul says is true about the them that he's referring to. The first thing that he says is true of them. The first reason he gives as to why the wrath of God is being revealed is that they suppress the truth. You see that there? They suppress the truth. Now, truth suppression is not something that we do passively, is it? You don't suppress the truth without knowing it. 
You don't, suppressing something implies, a, it implies an activeness, see? Uh, when I was a kid, uh, my sister, who's four years older than me, uh, she smuggled a cat into the house one time, right? And uh, she was going to make it her pet. And I, I don't know where the cat came from. I don't know where she got food for it. I don't know how any of this worked, right? But I did know, and she did too, that our parents did not want a cat, especially not in the house. So she kept it hidden in her closet, <laughs> right? Uh, and for a day or two, she suppressed the truth, see? And she, she suppressed the truth about this cat that she was caring for in, in her closet. Now, eventually they found out, my parents found out, right? Because cats make noise and they make stink. So eventually my, my parents found out here that she was suppressing the truth. That's the idea of suppressing the truth. To suppress the truth, you have to know the truth and actively do something about it. And the they that Paul is talking about here, they did know the truth and they suppressed the truth. You see that? He he tells us about their knowledge of the truth as we read on in verse 19 where he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse. Paul is talking here about what theologians call general revelation. It's the truth that God has revealed himself everywhere to everyone through his creation. Not comprehensively, but generally. And significantly, there there are certain things that God has made plain to everyone, evident to everyone through his creation. He has shown it to them, Paul says. David says it this way in Psalm 19, that the, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In other words, the sky is a preacher. It's a preacher. And just what does this preacher sky tell us? What exactly does general revelation make plain? God's invisible attributes, Paul says. Not all of them, verse 20, but namely his eternal power and his divine nature. These these eternal attributes, these invisible attributes of God, they have been clearly perceived ever since the beginning of the world in the things that God has made. Now think about that. What Paul is saying here is that God has not hidden himself. He's made himself known. I mean, look around you. You think all of this just like, it just happened by, by chance or something, right? No, we are to look around at the created world and we are to see the clouds and we are to see the mountains and the oceans and the foxes and the sea lions and the ecosystems and the food chains and the babies and the sunrise and the moon and gravity and immune systems and steak. And we're to conclude, there is an eternal creator. There is a God, and he is powerful and majestic, even good. Everyone everywhere can see it. It's revealed to them. It's been made plain to them. God has shown it to them. He's shown them the truth. And they have suppressed it like a cat in my sister's closet. They are therefore without excuse. That's what he says at the end of verse 20. Who is the they that are without excuse? 
everyone, everywhere. Now wait just a minute, you say, what about those who never heard about Jesus? And that's a great question, and so hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that through general revelation, anyone can be saved. You can't be. You need Jesus for that. The sky is not sufficient for salvation. But through general revelation, everyone, everywhere, can know something of God's power, something of his deity and his glory. This knowledge that people suppress is not enough to save them, but according to Paul's argument here, it is enough to leave them without excuse when it comes to the wrath of God being revealed against their unrighteousness. So, first thing that Paul says is true of them. The first reason he gives as to why the wrath of God is being revealed is that they suppress the truth. The second reason Paul gives is that they're ungrateful. Look at, look at verse 21. It says, for although they knew God, this is true of the they, of the them, they knew God. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They knew God, he says. How? Through general revelation. But they refused to honor him, refused to glorify him or give thanks to him. They're ungrateful. They see his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature and all that he's created, and they say, eh. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, therefore they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, which illustrates the third reason why the wrath of God is being revealed. They committed idolatry. Idolatry. And this here is the very definition of idolatry. All idolatry is an, is an exchange. It's an exchange of, of worship, an exchange of, of glory. God, as creator and eternal God, is worthy, right, of, of all worship. He is due all glory. But our idolatrous hearts come along and make an exchange. Instead of glorifying God, we create little g-gods out of other things and glorify them instead. And we do it with ourselves, mortal man, making ourselves into gods or, or other people, human beings, into God. Paul says we do it with birds and animals and creeping things. We, listen, we do it with work. We do it with relationships or power, sex, all these different things. Just about anything other than God can become a God that we exchange the glory of God and worship. And the wrath of God is being revealed against that, Paul says. See, idolatry is the root of all of our sin issues. Of all the evil in the world, it comes about when, when we stop worshiping the God of the Bible and start worshiping other things or other people instead. Idolatry is rejecting God. It's refusing to glorify God and honor God. Therefore, it's marked by a lack of thanksgiving to God. And when we live that way, we suppress the truth. Why is the wrath of God being revealed? Because of the suppression of the truth, our ungrateful hearts towards God, and idolatry. And 
to say that, right? It runs completely counter to our culture because it, to say this is to state that there is a universal sacred order of things. It sets forth that there is a God and he is to be worshipped. That there are transcendent realities. This isn't a choose your own adventure story. And the truths to this puzzle aren't found in us as the modern psychological self wants to hear. No, they're found outside of us. Subjective truth isn't what is to prevail. We need a grounding outside of ourselves found in the objective truth of God. And he's not hidden. What can be known about God is plain, Paul says. God shows it everywhere. It is countercultural, I hope you see, to say that there, there is a God, one God, and he is to be worshipped. He is to be central in your life. And when he's not, when he is suppressed, when we live with ungrateful hearts toward him and worship other things other than him, we live under his wrath. That's why his wrath is being revealed. Now you might be thinking about right now, it doesn't seem like his wrath is being revealed. You might say, well, I know plenty of people who live however they darn well please, and to be honest, they seem fairly content and happy with their life. God hasn't struck them down with lightning yet. He hasn't made their teeth fall out or anything weird like that. And so what's the big deal about all this wrath of God business? Which leads us to point number three here. How the wrath of God is being revealed. How? Look at verse 24. He's going to tell us. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged. Do you see? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This phrase here, God gave them up, uh, it appears three times in the text, and it's the key to understanding how the wrath of God is being revealed. Not in divine action, we might say, but rather in what looks like divine inaction. Follow Paul's logic, all right? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, because they've suppressed the truth and worshipped idols and didn't glorify him, therefore, God gave them up. You see it in verse 24? You see it again in verse 26, and it's there again in verse 28. They didn't worship God. They rejected God. They knew about him. The sky preached it at them, but they rejected God. They wanted, they wanted other things more than God. Their passions were more important to them than God. Their self-indulgence, their self-centeredness, their self-worship, and, and therefore the wrath of God is revealed. How? By giving them what they want. Given up to impurity, verse 24. Sexual impurity, to be more precise. Given up to dishonorable passions, verse 26. Given up to a debased mind, verse 28. This is what happens when we worship something or someone other than God. He doesn't strike us down. He gives us what we supremely want. I love how the, the message translation captures this. It says, if that's what you want, that's what you get. One author said it this way. It says, the worst thing that God can do to human beings in the present 
is to let them reach their idolatrous goals. Why would that be so bad? Well, because you and I know, right, as believers, we, we know that nothing but God truly satisfies. That's why. I mean, ask the millionaire. Ask the millionaire, has, has, has all that money, has it saved you from all your problems? No. Ask the, 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 the most famous TikTok star that, that you can track down, right? Has all the fame made you full or do you still feel empty inside? Whatever you worship, other than God, see, it doesn't free you. It doesn't liberate you. It enslaves you. And one of the most telling of all places that we see this, Paul saw it in our day, we can see it in our day too, is with sex. I wonder how many of you got uncomfortable just a little bit when Harmony read that full passage a little bit earlier. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about, especially verses 26 through 27. We, verses 26 through 27 are one of the most important and lengthiest passages in the Bible on homosexuality and same-sex attraction. Right? It's therefore one of the most controversial passages that there is in the Bible. In our cultural moment, there is almost nothing as controversial as pronouncing what the Bible has to say about sex, especially when it comes to lesbian sex or gay sex or bi or trans or queer or plus. Now, Romans 1 is not the only place that the Bible talks about homosexuality. I've heard people say, maybe you have too. The Bible is silent on this issue. It's very much not. And if you're feeling uncomfortable right now, let me just say up front, that the Bible, it does call homosexuality sin. But it's not the only sin. It's not the worst sin. It's not an unforgivable sin. There's lots of sins. Why does Paul single this one out here? Well, I think to make some very important points. And we'll look at those points in a moment. But listen, we, we can talk about this. We can it's not popular. It might shrink our church. Some might listen to the sermon online and call me a bigot. But we can read the Bible and talk about the Bible. If we're going to be faithful to God, we're going to have to. In fact, oftentimes when the church loses her way on this specific issue, it's precisely because she stopped reading her Bible. And what I mean by that is that just about every time the topic of homosexuality is addressed in the Bible, it's surrounded by other sexual sins too. So we can go to Leviticus 20. We can read Leviticus 20, verse 13. We don't have to be afraid of it. We can read Leviticus 20, verse 13, that if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. That's pretty clear. But listen, immediately before verse 13 in Leviticus chapter 20, do you know what else is declared sinful? Adultery. In fact, Leviticus 20 talks about all kinds of sexual sin that I'm going to spare you of this morning, but you can go read them later this afternoon if you like. But just to hone in on this one, adultery. Does anyone remember what Jesus said about adultery at the Sermon on the Mount? Anybody? Matthew 5, verse 28, I do. He said, if anyone looks at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And so which is worse? Homosexuality, adultery, or lust. None is worse. None is more sinful. Which is better? None of them are better, are they? No, they're all sin. Sin. 
in the New Testament. Romans 1 isn't even the only place in the New Testament that talks about homosexuality. We see it in 1 Timothy 1 and 1 Corinthians 6. And every time, including Romans 1, every time, it's not isolated as some sin above all other sins. No, every time it's just in a list of sins. And so in 1 Timothy 1 we read, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers. And we're like, oh, that's bad stuff. And he says, for the sexually immoral, and for men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars makes the list, perjurers. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God to which I have been entrusted. So just pointing out the obvious, right? But liars is on the same list with those who practice homosexuality. As are the, the disobedient, maybe the ruling authorities on a certain issue of the day where maybe a mandate or something has come along, you know? It's also on the same list with the sexually immoral which would include any sex outside of heterosexual marriage. And so adultery, extramarital, premarital, the viewing of pornography, and so on. All of it. Or consider 1 Corinthians 6. Or Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's a line that gets our attention. So he says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, there's that term again, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you see it here? Homosexuality is there, but so is sexual immorality again. So is greed. So is drunkenness. And such were some of you, Paul says to the Corinthians. Do you realize what that means? It means that there were likely those in the church in Corinth who previously to coming to faith in Jesus were active in a homosexual lifestyle. Such were some of you, Paul says. And now he can write to them now living presumably a repentant lifestyle, just like the drunkard or the liar or the gossip, and, he's, and, and abstaining from homosexual sex, though I'm sure not completely any freer from their same-sex desires than the heterosexual lustful desires that his or her brother and sister in Christ might battle on this side of salvation. But look, Paul can write to them and not only them, but certainly not excluding them. And he can say to them in 1 Corinthians 1, I give thanks to my God always for you. Always. Because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. God is faithful, he says, by whom you. You were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. <laughs> this is so important for us to understand. It hasn't always been handled well by Christians, and we, we need to own that. You know, if, if you're here today, 
And same-sex attraction is part of your story, okay? Um, and, and if you've ever been made to feel dirtier or filthier or more heinous because of that struggle, if you've ever been made to feel that church isn't for you or isn't a safe place for you or a welcoming place for you, we need to own that. And I'm sorry that you felt that way. I'm sorry that you've experienced the church that way, perhaps. We need to own all this so that when we read the clear and plain reading of Romans 1, 26 through 27, where Paul elaborates on the sinfulness of homosexual sex, saying, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. We need to understand how the Bible talks about homosexuality when we read that. We need to realize that just a few verses before, Paul talks of giving them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, presumably in that passage, in that paragraph, in heterosexual ways, but in no less sinful ways. We need to realize that in just a few verses later, he's going to list out gossip. He's going to list out boastfulness, you Instagrammers. He's going to list out disobedience to your parents, kids in the room, and haughtiness, pride. Is homosexuality a sin? Yes, it's a sin. But it's not the only sin or the worst of sins. It's just a sin. And there's two ways for Christians and churches to err here. You know, that the first way is in an effort to be relevant to culture and seem loving and welcoming to those who are practicing homosexuality or struggling with same-sex attraction is to downplay or ignore the plain and clear teaching of the Bible where it does indeed call it sin. This is the approach that you'll find in many liberal churches in our city. They'll even argue that this text applies only to those who act against their own nature. That's one of the ways that they deal with this text. That it only applies to those who act against their own nature. But that actually skews the text. The text doesn't say contrary to your nature. Some subjective reality that you decide for yourself that, that ignores the sacred order. No, Paul is appealing here to the created nature that God gave us. It's not subjective. It's not choose your own adventure. It's objective. It's not found in you. It's found outside of you in the sacred order of creation, male and female, with covenant marriage being the created context for sex. And so the first way to err, therefore, is in a liberal direction of downplaying, ignoring what God's word clearly and in multiple places, Old Testament and New teaches, and what it calls a sin. The second way to err, though, is to take on the topic in a self-righteous way that somehow conveys that homosexuality is the sin. And that we must, for some reason, then shun away from a person who is lesbian, gay, bi, trans, queer, as if they're somehow any different than the coworker that you work with or the person that you live with who won't stop viewing pornography or sleeping with her boyfriend. Or, or, the person who gossips 
or boasts in their life, of their life on Instagram or is filled with a sense of greed when their neighbor starts another home improvement project. In other words, as if they were really any that different from you in the eyes of the Lord in terms of sin. Paul doesn't err in either way, does he? He doesn't downplay this issue of sin. He doesn't overplay this issue of sin. Instead, he, he uses it to make two points, I believe. The first is practical. The second is theological. See, first, remember where we're headed. We're headed towards Romans 3, verse 23, where Paul's going to say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. By the time we get that to there, like, we're all going to know, we're all going to realize that we all need Jesus, every single one of us. And we can't earn our way to God. We can't work our way to God. We can't perfect our way towards God. We need the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ to be saved. Well, when we think about it that way, Romans 1, 26 through 27, it's sort of like a play in the San Francisco 49ers football team's playbook, okay? Stick with me here, football fans. I, I, was, I was watching them play last Sunday night, 49ers versus Packers. Packers won last second field goal. There's the special teams thing again. You know, you got to pay attention to the special teams. But li- listen, the, the 49ers offense is something to behold, I mean, they've got all kinds of crazy plays, all kinds of pre-snap motion. Dan knows what I'm talking about. And, and Coach Kyle Shanahan is a G, he's an offensive genius, right? And the announcer, I'm watching this last Sunday night, I'm watching this, and I don't remember who the announcer was, but the announcer said, now watch this. They ran that play to set up this play. And they're going to run this play to set up the next play. And when they string three or four of those together, bammo, he says, they got you. They got you. Well, Romans 1, 26 through 27 functions a little bit like one of those plays for some of us. Maybe it draws you in, see, and you think, yes, that's right. You're reading through 26 and 27. You say, those people are the really bad ones. Those people who live that way, <laughs> right? They, well, they deserve the wrath of God. Well, not so fast because here comes the next play. <laughs> it's that last paragraph. God giving us up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Covetousness is on that list. Right? You might be coveting more victories for your football team this week. Gossips, slanderers, insolent, which means rude. It means like an arrogant lack of respect. Anybody maybe practice that a little bit in the last two years? Gossips, haughty, boastful, foolishness, heartlessness. No one in this room, see, can read through that list and come out the other side. And if you think you do, you're haughty, which just puts you back on the list. Bammo. He's got you. See, the the sin of homosexuality is a very practical example that helps lead to his fuller and more final point that all of us deserve the wrath of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. But then there's a more theological point here too that the example of homosexuality illustrates. Remember earlier, remember why the wrath of God is being revealed? It's, it's because of the rejection of God and a failure to honor him. You see, the fundamental sin here isn't sexual. It's doxological. The, the fundamental sin is misguided worship. It's suppressing the truth. It's not glorifying God, not honoring God, not worshiping God. All other sin is a consequence that flows from this one. Paul is showing us that sexual immorality 
It's all a consequence of human idolatry. And it's complicated in our culture because our culture mistakes idolatry for identity. But just calling it something else doesn't change what it is. Now, idolatry, we might say, is unnatural. Think about that. Idolatry is unnatural in the sense that it is contrary to God's intention for human beings. It's contrary, to use a phrase from earlier, the sacred order of things. Idolatry is. It's the sacred order that says, God exists. Look out the window. He exists. He's creator. He's created everyone and everything. He's sustainer. He sustains everyone and everything. And everyone everywhere is to worship him. This is the end for which he created the world. That's the natural order, the the natural sacred created order. Creature worshiping creator. Idolatry makes the exchange. It turns that natural order upside down. It exchanges the truth about God for a lie and worships and serves the creature rather than the creator. It's unnatural, see, And Paul uses the example of homosexuality as an illustration of precisely this point. In the sexual sense, the mere image of the unnatural choice of idolatry is homosexuality. What's natural? What's the sacred order? Human beings having sexual relationships in the context of covenant marriage with the opposite sex. Homosexuality, therefore, illustrates, it's a great example of how idolatry is the very opposite of what God, our creator, intended in the sacred order of things. Just as homosexuality is contrary to what God planned for sexuality, so idolatry is contrary to what God planned for doxology. Our main problem isn't sexual It's doxological. Sexual sin is a manifestation of the deeper exchange, one of which we are all guilty. That's the bad news. What's being revealed? The wrath of God. Why? Because we suppress the truth. We have ungrateful hearts. We don't glorify God as we should, and instead we commit idolatry. How is it being revealed? By God giving us over to the over-desires of our own hearts. One plain example, homosexuality, which is really an illustrative example of idolatry of various forms of which we are all guilty. The bad news, see, it affects all of us. None are without excuse. And therefore, we need, all of us do, the righteousness of God which is revealed in the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, which is why we're not ashamed of it. Nor are we ashamed of Romans chapter one. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to see not just other people in this text, to see ourselves in this text, help the gospel shine forth brightly against the dark night sky of our sin. 
Help us to reckon with the bad news. Help us to see it as, as, as destructive. Help us to see us as desiring something other than Jesus. So it'll be good news when we hear and rest in the gospel of Jesus. Lord, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, would we, would we keep a grasp of this bad news that you would guard us from self-righteousness? You would keep the gospel, what we've been saved from, you would keep the, the gospel sweet to us so that we would continuously respond in awe and wonder, praise and worship, glorifying you. Father, we read at the end of this passage that it's not just those who practice these things, but those who give approval to those who practice these things. As we meditate upon that, in light of everything else that we've looked at here, would we see that that doesn't just affect how we watch Netflix. It affects how we watch the news. It affects all kinds of things in our hearts and in our responses. And so, Lord, this morning, as the bad news is made darkly apparent to us in Romans chapter 1, would you remind us of the good news? That you sent your son, even while we were still sinful, he came, he died for us. To rescue us from all the things that we try to worship besides him. To set us free from the over-desires of our hearts. To find lasting satisfaction and joy and purpose in him. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.